Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. During the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Benjamin Franklin was buttonholed by a Philadelphian who asked, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? To which the 87-year-old replied, A republic, if you can keep it. If we can keep it, how the republic collapsed and how it might be saved is the title of a new book from Michael Tomaski. Uh, He says that polarization is a political crisis and a social, cultural, and economic one. Uh, But he makes makes clear in the book, it's as American as apple pie. In fact, it's what has defined our democracy from day one. The difference, he says, we have reached in the Trump era the very limit of party tribalism and voter apathy. He does outline in the book 14-point agenda that uh, posits that it's ultimately in the best self-interest of politicians on either side of the aisle to look beyond the extremes of their parties for solutions to gerrymandering the Electoral College filibusters and a disengaged electorate. Michael Tomaski is a columnist for the Daily Beast, contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, regular uh, contributor to the New York Review of Books, and editor of Democracy, a journal of ideas. He lives in Maryland. Michael Tomaski, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be with you. Uh, so, an important book, uh, very interesting, uh, interesting book. And uh, I want to start with this idea of uh, this phrase that this polarization is as American as apple pie. This is this was baked in, no pun intended. I guess pun intended. Now, um, b- baked in at the beginning. Well, it was, uh, and um, I, I documented in the book going back to the Constitutional Convention, even before, really. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they had great arguments at the Constitutional Convention. We're taught in school that they produced this document and that it was somehow above politics and and uh, almost handed down from the heavens or something. But, in fact, it was a very intensely political process. Uh, and they took a lot of very close votes, and they disagreed about a lot of things, and they, they made a lot of compromises that were distasteful to everybody. Then... It was ratified, uh, and that, too, was a very contentious process, as I'm sure your listeners know. Then we had a republic, and um, but we were, we were at each other's throats right from the start. Um, in the early days, it was the, mostly the Hamiltonians versus the Jeffersonians. The Hamilton followers were the, the elites, if you will, the, the coastal people, the city slickers, the swells. The Jeffersonians were the backwoods people, the yeoman farmers. And uh, they argued about largely uh, the same thing we argue about today, the same main thing, the the size and scope and and power of the federal government. Uh, And on and on and on uh, through the decades and the centuries. And um, yes, we have always been divided. It's a pretty natural condition for us. It's a little worse today uh, because, uh, well, for a bunch of reasons, but one of them, the main one that I discuss in the book at some length, is the changing nature of our political parties and how there used to be a lot of overlap in our political parties and how that's all gone. We're taught, I think, in our, our civics uh, classes, and that that's been shrinking. That's uh, something you talk about in the book. I think we have this popular conception that um, there was a hope, at least on the part of some founding fathers, that we would not have political parties. That was never that was never going to fly, right? There there were going to be coalitions. Yeah, yeah, that was that was just never going to happen. And I think they realized it. They 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 warned against political parties. You know, in the way parents warn against their teenagers uh, having a beer or something like that. I mean, you know, it wasn't desirable, but they knew it was going to happen. But they hoped that uh, uh, that even when parties formed, men, and they meant men in those days, men could still sit down and reason together in in fairly good faith and compromise and come to some kind of agreements. You write that um, at the very beginning, the American system, um, and it continues to be, it's peculiar compared to political systems around the world. How, how peculiar? Yeah, well, uh, I'm referring there to uh, our parties and the way our political parties grew. Uh, in some, they were never, until our time, uh, ideological, uh, ideologically cohesive things. Um, if you compare it, say, to Europe, uh, shortly after we created our democratic republic, the, the countries of Europe started casting off monarchy and becoming democratic republics. And, and as they became democracies, they too formed political parties, but they generally formed a party of the left and a party of the right. Uh, England had the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. Germany had the 
social democrats and the christian democrats other countries called them by other names but there was a party of the left and a party of the right but in the united states we did not have that 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 happened for a few reasons that are peculiar to our country uh one of which was slavery when they formed parties in the early days rather than let there be say a northern party and a southern party or an anti-slavery party and a pro-slavery party they tried to form coalitions that would transcend North and South in the interest of kind of putting off the slavery debate because they knew that it was an incendiary debate that would lead to uh, where it ultimately led to war. Um, So it was partly slavery. It was also partly the way the country grew over the course of the 19th century and added states and added populations and added these new political interests that made our parties these real hodgepodges of interests so that uh, the Democratic Party of the late 19th century, for example, was a party of Southern segregationists who imposed Jim Crow and was a party of Northern um, uh, machine politicians like Boss Tweed, uh, who were more interested in you know the streetlight contracts than they were in any national policy. Uh, so the Democratic Party was this strange amalgam, and the Republican Party was too. It was a party of Wall Street, but also the party of prairie populists to some extent. Uh, and this continued well into the 20th century, and it was just weird, but it did have a silver lining. The silver lining was that there was a lot of overlap in the parties. There were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Older listeners will remember some of these people going back to the 1960s and 70s. And uh, and there was even, a, you know, Democrats could get elected in a state like yours. You know, Frank Moss yeah, was yeah, a senator. I, I remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, that's pretty impossible these days. Uh, and in more recent times, the parties have become more like European parties. They've become more ideologically coherent, and that overlap has disappeared. I want to keep it on parties. We'll go back to a little bit of history uh, later on. But uh, uh, you say that one development is um, the parties are not just very different from each other. Um, they're different in kind um, nowadays. The Republican Party has has uh, changed into something very different. The Democrats are still trying to deal with the, with changes. Yeah, well, um, the Republican Party uh, has basically been taken over by the conservative movement. So the conservative movement started in the 1950s around William Buckley and the creation of the National Review magazine and then the candidacy of Barry Goldwater in 1964. And it was a movement that grew and gained power and um, through a lot of financial investment by wealthy people who believed in it in the 1970s. came to be a big part of the Republican Party over the course of the 80s and 90s. But now the conservative movement is the Republican Party. Um, Has the same thing happened on the Democratic side? Not really, not quite. It's kind of starting to happen, you could argue, with the the move left among people like Ocasio-Cortez and and Bernie Sanders, although he's not a Democrat, but he's running for the Democratic nomination. Uh, So the Democratic Party is sort of beginning to become a party of a movement, but it's also still a party of different factions. Uh, You know, the economic faction, the union faction, the environmental faction, uh, the civil rights faction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Whereas the Republican Party is more of a movement party. So they've become kind of different things in our time. Uh, you outlined several, uh, you know, eras of, of our history, and uh, you point out that part of why we're so distressed about polarization, although it's it's a crisis in and of itself, uh, is that many of us have a memory of a time, which you say is an aberration, where uh, polarization was was greatly ameliorated. It was, and uh, you know, I was born, I was a little kid in this time. I was born in 1960. And uh, I grew up in a pretty political household. My parents talked about politics a lot. And so we watched the news and we knew who all these senators and members of Congress were. Uh, And it was a time of unusual compromise. And I think there are a few reasons for that. And I think the main one is that uh, is the, the shared experiences that these 
these people had in those days. The, the period of, of being kids during the Depression and then going off to fight the war, uh, they knew what an enemy was. You know, if you landed on Utah Beach or helped liberate Buchenwald or fought in Okinawa, you had an idea in your head of what an enemy was. And it wasn't the guy across the aisle who was from a different political party than you. <laughs> you know, An enemy was something altogether different. And the country went through this period of, of shared sacrifice. You know, I discuss in the book the quota system of food and, and goods that, uh, that was imposed uh, on the home front during the war uh, that people accepted and that made everyone pull together. Uh, it was just a very different time, a very unique time. Those two events, depression and war, really made for uh, a, a country that was that was more sort of socially cohesive. And when the men, and it was mostly men, who went through those experiences, came back and got themselves elected to Congress and went to Washington, they just didn't see it as warfare in Washington. They saw themselves as having a a public trust to protect, and they had different views, Democrats and Republicans, of how to protect it. But they saw it as their duty to protect it and to compromise and to work together. And that all disappeared uh, when the next generation came into place. And I, I say in the book, Newt Gingrich is the emblematic figure of this, but it wasn't just him. And, and so this, and you called it the age we're living in now, the age of fracture, right? But that's yeah. much, much more emblematic, much more like what preceded the World War II generation with the early, you know, go back to to the founding. That's much more typical of what we're experiencing today? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I think, uh, as I say in the book, I think that period from depression through the post-war era uh, of great prosperity. And economics is a big part of the story here, too, Tom, and I have a, a chapter devoted to it. Uh, but those years from 1945 through 1975 or so uh, were years of broadly shared prosperity. Uh, you know, as the old cliche goes, you could graduate from high school and go down to the plant and get a job and keep that job for life and buy a home and have a mortgage and raise a family. Uh, and that began to disappear in the 70s. Wages began to stagnate. Uh, deindustrialization began to happen. Uh, the very beginnings of globalization. Uh, so, you know, all that pulled us into the age of fracture as well. There's a very big economic element to it, but there's also, a, you know, there's a, there's a social element to it as well. And we, we began to have arguments at that same time, at that same time that these economic ruptures were announcing themselves. We also began to have more contested arguments over race and over women's rights and abortion and over immigration and some of the other cultural issues that you know, still tear us apart today. So the title of the book, If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved, and you're talking about polarization, a political crisis, also a social, cultural, and economic one. How dire do you think it is today? Well, I think uh, we're in pretty dire straits today, and um, I do think Donald Trump makes it worse. I mean, this is not all because of him, obviously. He's a uh, he's a, an effect more than a cause, but uh, he's doing some pretty good causing of his own. I mean, he, he ran explicitly uh, on uh, uh, dividing the country. Uh, he said, I, I'm for you. He, I mean, he, people complain about identity politics. They're usually complaining about the left, and there's validity to that. Uh, but, you know, he's Mr. Identity Politics, too. It's just his identity politics is white, uh, you know, white working-class people, generally. And he said, I'm for you. I'm your Avenger. I really don't care about those other people. And he said about, you know, offending a lot of the other people. Uh, so he's a problem, but he's not really the problem. Um, the problem is deeper than him, and uh, you know it's it's one that has just it's gotten worse and worse. And uh, you know I do have some ideas about ways out of it, but I'm not saying 
to my readers that it's going to happen overnight or that it's going to be easy. It's mm-hmm. it's going to take some time. Uh, and I want to uh, want to get into uh, those ideas. You have a fourteen point, uh, I guess you call it uh, agenda. And I was struck uh, reading down through the agenda, you know, you, you get hope if you think about some of these things being enacted, but you inevitably on many of these would say, now this is not going to happen, you know, very soon. Yeah. Uh, so this is a kind of a I do. pointing toward the toward a future, I guess, that we need to, to work toward. I want to follow up on, on Trump. You, you say that Trump is, um, you know, he's causing some problems, but he's also a symptom um, uh, you know, he's, he, he's, he, his help, himself was caused by, by some of these uh, things. Um, and you talked about uh, Newt Gingrich. Um, I wonder how much of this is systemic and how much of it is, you know, personalities and, and, and charismatic figures. Well, you know, I think we focus a little too much on personalities in, in the general day-to-day media, uh, and that's not to say that you know their personalities haven't played important roles in these, in these uh, developments. They have. But I really kind of think at the end of the day that, um, that systemic forces, institutional forces, historical forces, whatever you want to call it, I think those things are, are more important. Um, you know, I, I think if Newt Gingrich had come around uh, in the 1950s, he wouldn't have been the same Newt Gingrich that we experienced in the 1980s. The Newt Gingrich of the 1980s, who existed, saw an opportunity. Uh, and the opportunity was to convert Southern conservative Democrats into Republicans. And, you know, the way to do that was uh, partly on race and partly on questions of, you know, distrust of government, and partly on a few other things. So he set about doing that. And, you know, he did it pretty successfully. But I think if he had come along uh, at a different time, I think he would have behaved in a different way. Uh, at one point in the book, uh, and I think this is, this is kind of an important point, I think, for people to understand. At one point, I talk about the Senate leaders of 50 years ago and the Senate leaders of today. So today, of course, the leaders are Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer on the Democratic side. Fifty years ago, it was um, Mike Mansfield, who was the leader of the Democrats, who had the majority, and Everett Dirksen, leader of the Republicans, in the minority. Uh, now, we tend to, we see, we look back at history, and we see that, McC- that Mansfield and uh, Dirksen presided over a lot more compromise and bipartisan uh, comity than McConnell and Schumer do. And we ascribe that in part to them. And certainly Mansfield in particular did some things to to make that happen. But they were also just reacting to the kinds of social forces uh, that existed in their time. And I say, I go so far as to say, if you put McConnell and Schumer back in 1965, 66, they too would have presided over uh, cooperation and compromise. And if you brought Mansfield and Dirksen up to our time, they'd be presiding over just as much, much dysfunction as McConnell and Schumer are today. So I think these forces are really, really important. Yeah, I was struck by that comparison as well, and I, I, I take your point. It's, uh, you know, the, the reputations of Mansfield and others are perhaps a function of their times, so perhaps fortunate for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's take let's take a break. When we come back, I want to want to uh, jump into uh, some of this uh, fourteen point agenda. Uh, very interesting uh, potential uh, solutions, um, including I'll just uh, read off a couple of these to uh, wet people's appetite and partisan gerrymandering. Bring back at large congressional elections. Uh, those are part of the uh, political fixes. But you have some social and cultural fixes. One very interesting, established foreign interstate uh, college ex- student exchange programs between blue and red states. That's fascinating. Uh, we'll talk more about this. The book is If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. The author, Michael Tomaski, is with us. More following this break. The history of body modification is as old as humanity itself. Some of the most common body modifications present in American culture, including dyed hair, makeup, tattoos, piercings, and implants, are those that we observe around the world and throughout time. 
Nose piercing is mentioned in the Old Testament, and tongue piercing was practiced by the ancient Aztecs and Mayans of Central America. Otzi, a Bronze Age ice mummy, bears evidence that his ears were not only pierced, but gauged. His remains also show that he had at least 57 tattoos on different parts of his body. Body modification today is practiced for the same reasons it has historically been popular. Rites of passage, social belonging, and fashion. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Composer Julia Perry suffered a stroke in 1971. Her right side was paralyzed, which meant she couldn't write with a pen or pencil. Perry taught herself to write down music with her left hand, so was able to continue composing. We'll celebrate the life and legacy of Julia Perry on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about uh, polarization. Uh, the author, Michael Tabaski says it's uh, not only a political crisis, but it's a social, cultural, and economic one as well. And in the age of Trump, we're at the very limit of party tribalism and voter uh, apathy and mistrust of public uh, officials. So what do we do? We want to jump into uh, some solutions. Michael Tabaski in his book, If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved, has a 14-point agenda to reduce uh, polarization. Uh, and just to, as we jump into this, Michael Tomaski, I just wanted to underscore the point that you make in the book, which is uh, a lot of this, maybe most of this, is structural, right? I mean, we, we can decry our politicians and say, hey, have more courage or whatever, but uh, politicians want to be reelected. I'm struck by it. I, I saw a piece, uh, an interview uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina gave, and at least the spin this article put on it um, was that Senator Graham was somewhat obliquely giving an explanation of why he went from a, a Trump hater to a Trump supporter. And he, this message essentially was, maybe my opinion of the president hasn't changed totally, but I want to be relevant and I want to get reelected. Yeah. And, you know, they've always wanted to get reelected. I mean, they weren't better in some magical, mythical past time. <laughs> Their first concern has always been to get reelected. It's just that in the old days, they used to have to do different things to get elected. Uh, a senator from South Carolina some years ago had to appeal to members of both parties. Lindsey Graham doesn't have to appeal to members of both parties. Democrats are vastly outnumbered. Democrats are hardly, you know, like, it would have to be a Roy Moore-like situation for a Democrat to be elected senator from South Carolina. So he just has to maximize the Republican vote and those numbers of independents who are fundamentally Republican. And there are always independents who are basically Republican and independents who are basically Democrats. That's all he has to do. So why should he behave any differently? Uh, you know, well, how can he back away from Trump? What's Trump's approval rating in South Carolina? I don't know it, but I assume it's probably above 50%. Uh, if Trump falls to 40% in South Carolina, believe me, Lindsey Graham will talk differently. But not until then. So, yeah, and he wants to be reelected. And I, he's up, I guess, in 2020. Yeah, I think and he's so. Chairman of an extremely, he's chairman of an extremely powerful committee. So if you want to change, they're not going to just wake up one day and say, boy, I should behave differently and get along with the people across the aisle. They're not bad people. That's not going to happen. And it's not a question of will. It's a question of the incentive structures that they face. Lindsey Graham has no incentive to go get Democratic votes and to take moderate positions. Change the incentive structure, then maybe we're getting somewhere. So I want to jump into the 14-point agenda to reduce polarization, and uh, I don't know if it makes sense to, uh, you know, go out of order. I'd like to take this one at least out of order because it's kind of germane to the discussion we've just been having. Number seven, revive moderate republicanism. How, how do you revive yeah. moderate republicanism? <laughs> That's the one that makes people laugh when I give talks about this book. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there genuinely were moderate Republicans back in the 60s and 70s, and people like, uh, oh, uh, Charles 
Percy of Illinois and Jacob Javits of New York and stuff like that. Well, those people aren't coming back. Uh, people with those kinds of politics have joined the Democratic Party. Uh, so we're not going to elect people like that. However, I do think it might be possible uh, to try and elect some Republicans uh, from some, of, some, some purple districts, and Democrats too, uh, who, uh, although I think these Democrats exist, especially after last year's election when the Democrats won so many purple districts, but try to elect people who will actually compromise with the other side. Um, in other words, a typical Republican member of Congress today from one of these heavily gerrymandered districts, just like Lindsey Graham, doesn't have to worry about getting independent votes, doesn't have to worry about getting Democratic votes, doesn't worry in the slightest, in the slightest, about facing a general election challenge. He or she worries only about facing a primary from somebody to his or her right. And if that member of Congress, and this would be more true when a Democrat's president, uh, if that member of Congress voted for an Obama judge or voted with Democrats on something that, you know, could be denounced on talk radio as big government, they would, boom, have a primary challenger. And that primary challenger would be very well financed by groups like the Club for Growth and other groups like that. Uh, so that's what they live in fear of. That's what they live in absolute fear of. They're going to be primaried if they bolt the party line. There needs to be some force, Tom, that countervails that force and that creates, again, to use this word, an incentive for them to compromise and to govern from the center. This is a project that, you know, I don't know exactly how it would be structured, but it would take many, many tens of millions of dollars over a number of years to, to try and find and run people who, who would actually commit to compromising and who could win and then win re-election after compromising a couple of times. Yeah, you know, it's all kind of a long shot, I admit. But on the other hand, the silver lining is you don't need that many people like that. You need about 15. 15 in, in our House of Representatives is an actual block, and they can make the difference. They can swing votes. They can change outcomes, 15 people. So if you got 15 who were just willing to do that and didn't live in fear of a primary from the right all the time, maybe things could change a little. You mentioned uh, gerrymandering, uh, number one on your list, and partisan gerrymandering. Uh, how, do, how, do, how would that happen? I got Utah here, we just, uh, an initiative passed. It was a very yeah. close vote, but it passed uh, to set up a, uh, a commission, a bipartisan uh, commission on redistricting. Is that the kind of thing that needs yeah. to happen? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the kind of thing. And that passed in a handful of states. I noticed that Utah did, and, uh, and a number of other states did. Uh, and it wasn't, as Utah makes the example, it wasn't all blue states. It was a couple of red states and some purple states. Uh, and these commissions, you know, they're not going to solve every problem under the sun, uh, but they'll be better. Uh, they'll draw fairer districts than legislators will draw for themselves. Uh, and uh, they'll be balanced uh, in a, you know, ideologically balanced or balanced in terms of party affiliation. And um, they'll do a fairer job. Now, will the Supreme Court uphold these commissions? That I don't know. Is this current Supreme Court probably capable of striking down these commissions, which would be a pretty bad blow. But, uh, but you know, they're a good direction to move in. Uh, you have uh, three uh, suggestions about the uh, House of Representatives. Um, uh, fascinating. You say, uh, number two, bring back at-large congressional elections. Yeah. Um, uh, a little bit complicated to go too deep into the details on radio, but... Uh, Here's the thing. This country used to have uh, elect members of the House of Representatives uh, on an at-large basis or from uh, multi-member districts. We have single-member districts in the House of Representatives, and we mostly have throughout our history. So we think that that's normal and that's the way it needs to be. But that's not the only way it has to be at all, Tom. There are other democracies that don't use single-member districts. Uh, 
England does, but you know, Germany does not. Uh, a lot of countries, most most democracies, in fact, don't use single-member districts. They use at-large districts um, or multi-member districts, where you might slice a state into regions and then elect a number elect a number of of uh, representatives from that region. Uh, what does this do? Well, it helps solve the gerrymandering problem because everybody's not running from a single member aggressively gerrymandered district. They're running from full states or larger regions and therefore presumably have to widen their appeal beyond just a narrow uh, electorate of the sort that can get them elected uh, in a single member house district. Um, this is not going to solve every problem. Obviously, the countries that elect uh, their uh, legislators in this method, they're polarized too, and we're polarized over real issues. But it can help around the margins. Again, if you can just get you know, a dozen somewhat more moderate members into Congress, that makes a difference. Um, uh- this fascinating as well. Expand the House of Representatives to 500 uh, members. You, you point out that in the United Kingdom, each member of parliament represents, uh, what, around 100,000 people in the U.S.? Uh, right. Each representative represents, what, is it 700,000 or something? Yeah, more, 730, 740. Yeah, so like so that. it's it's not uh, the, the members of the House aren't as close to the people as the founders envisioned. They're not, and, uh, you know... <laughs> I'm sure your listeners will remember. So the House of Representatives uh, was set at a, at a certain number uh, at, at the beginning, and that number was 65, and it was uh, 30,000 people. Each representative would represent about 30,000 people. And, of course, the Constitutional Convention called for uh, a, a census every 10 years that would measure the new population, and the size of the House of Representatives would be adjusted accordingly. And they did that every 10 years, never fairly, by the way, never fairly. Urban urban areas always got cheated. But at least they did it, and the size of the House of Representatives grew up through 1910, when it hit 435. And then they stopped. Now, the population of the country in 1910 was 90 million, and each member of the House represented about 250 or 60,000 people. And today, we still have that same 435 with 320 million people, and they represent, as we said, a little more than 700,000. It's not very democratic. They're not close to the people. And uh, you can't argue that there there should be more. I mean, I know, you know, let's hire more politicians is not <laughs> a, maybe a slogan to run for office on, but but it's something that I think we should consider, particularly, uh, actually provided that they can be elected by some of these other methods that I also discuss in other points in the book that might produce more moderate members. Uh, including ranked choice voting, which uh, I think they've introduced yeah. in, is it Maine? I, I read about Maine, a state yeah. that, yeah, that uh, recently has gone through an election with this. Um, so you, then you move to the Senate, and you, you muse, <laughs> you ruminate about maybe reversing the Connecticut Compromise, which set uh, you know two senators per state, which highly favors rural states and conservative states. Uh, you set that aside as a, probably not, it's probably not going to happen, uh, but you do uh, suggest that we eliminate the Senate filibuster. Yeah. I mean, there's not much to do about the Senate. It is undemocratic. I realize this is not going to make me terribly popular in Utah, but, um, you know... Uh, <laughs> You've got the two senators of California representing 55 million people and the two senators of Wyoming representing 650,000 people. Uh, that's just not right. And I actually think that if the founders came back today and saw these disparities, the disparities were bad enough when they agreed to this. And by the way, a lot of them hated this agreement. It passed by one vote at the Constitutional Convention. And the next morning, the representatives of the large states got together, and they said, what, what are we going to do about this? We, we can't let this stand. This is ridiculous. Uh, but they couldn't agree on what, should, what they should substitute. They couldn't agree on a course of action. So by one vote, five to four to one, with New York absent that day, incidentally, the Senate passed. Um, and there's just probably at this point not that much that can be done about it. 
the only thing I think that can be done to make the Senate work better is, as you say, uh, eliminate the filibuster. The filibusters, it's very important for people to understand. People always say, oh, but the Senate is supposed to slow things down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the Senate is supposed to slow things down. That's true. But the filibuster is not part of the Constitution, Tom. As you know, the filibuster came along later. It's just a rule. It can be changed. It wasn't used very much in the 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century. It really wasn't used very much until our time the 1970s and 1980s, the threat of a filibuster, that is. It was used on civil rights before, but that was really about it. Um, and it gives the minority the, the power over the majority, because 41 people can say no. And when 41 people can say no and kill something, they are effectively the majority. I mean, 41 out of 100, of course. Um, so it's a bad rule, and it it it's makes for an undemocratic situation. And there are a lot of quotes from founders uh, you know, in the Federalist Papers and elsewhere saying that you can't give a minority that kind of majority power. Uh, so yes, let's get rid of the filibuster. And that one, that one seems more doable. Um, they have eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, and that's the so-called constitutional um, would they call it the the nuclear option, the constitutional option? Yes, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that one is somewhat more doable. But uh, you know, you see that these these guys who've been in the Senate for a long, long time, who are such institutionalists um, in both parties, they're very hesitant to do it. I mean, I actually thought McConnell might have done it um, when uh, Trump became president, because if they had. And they can do it with a simple majority at the beginning of any new Senate. If they had, uh, imagine the things they could have passed. I mean, they, 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 you don't need to hit that 60-vote procedural uh, barrier anymore. You just need 51 votes, um, which, as I say, is as I think it should be. You know, I'm not a Trump fan, but, you know, let them, if they won the majority, they won it. Yeah. Majority rules. Let them pass their stuff, and then if the Democrats get a majority, let them unpass it and pass their stuff. It's much more democratic. But uh, senators are very institutional about it. Mm-hmm. By the way, this is, a, this is a point, maybe one of the very few, that uh, you and the president agree on. He, he has said to, you know, take away the filibuster. Yeah. Yeah, he has. Yeah. And, uh, okay, yeah. He's right once in a while. <laughs> That's right. There we go. Um, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, do the final point on the political fixes, and then I want to get into social and cultural fixes. This is very interesting. I think a lot of times we don't think about this. We think polarization, it's a political problem, but really you're saying it's uh, its not only a political problem, it's its a cultural, uh, social problem as well. Uh, but I do want to uh, talk about getting rid of the Electoral College or making it obey the popular vote, and that's uh, something that came about once again Uh, with the election of a president who lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College, our current president. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, for sponsoring our news programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. So we're pleased to have uh, Michael Tomaski with us. His latest book is If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. Talked about some of the origins of polarization. Now we're uh, going through Michael Topaski's 14-point agenda to reduce polarization. Uh, one more here on political fixes. This is a big one. You hear a lot about this one. Get rid of the Electoral College or make it obey the popular vote. Uh, I wonder, maybe starting on this, um, it does seem anachronistic. Why was it instituted in the first place? Remind us. 
Well, basically, they didn't really trust the people to reach the right decision. Uh, and so these electors, now, today, in our time, electors, nobody even knows who they are. They're irrelevant. And they merely validate what you know the state's outcome was. But the founders thought the electors should just take matters into their own hands. And like if the people made the wrong decision, the electors would be this class of distinguished, ed- educated men who would uh, correct what the people did and make the right decision. <laughs> and remember, in those days, people meant propertied white men. So they didn't even trust them to come to the right decision. And the Electoral College also ended up, it, it favored the slave states because combine it with the three-fifths rule, people will remember what that is, that three out of every five slaves was counted toward population uh, for census uh, and representation purposes. Uh, it gave slave states uh, more electoral votes. So there's no accident. All those guys were from Virginia in the, in the early days. Um, but now we should be beyond that. Uh, and yes, it's a problem. I mean, if you're a Republican, I guess you don't think it's a problem. But if you're a, if you're a constitutionalist and a small R Republican, small R Republican, you should maybe be bothered by the fact that two of our last what five elections, you know, the president is somebody who lost the popular vote. Why don't we just choose the person who got more popular votes? That's more democratic. That, that that's what I thought democracy was. Majority rules. And this is majority one, doesn't rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, this is one of those things. Uh, suggestions um, where you know it does seem unlikely that uh, you know the constitution could be changed or this is going to be changed structurally. But there is a uh, a movement afoot. The national popular vote. National popular vote. Yeah. Uh, you know, interstate compact. Uh, which is up to 12 states now, I think, with a total of 172 electoral votes. Uh, according to bills passed in these uh, states, if they get to uh, states equaling 270 electoral votes, which is enough to elect a president, then uh, immediately and uh, concertedly uh, these bills at the state level all go into effect. Right. Uh, so, in other words, these states have agreed that you know they'll give their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, not just the winner of their state. Uh, so that would have meant, I guess that would have meant that Hillary Clinton would be president, because if, if, if Pennsylvania and Michigan and uh, Wisconsin uh, had agreed to something like that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there, there are scenarios under which it can work in the Republicans' favor, too. Uh, and that's fine. That's the, It just, like, Let's let the majority elect the president. Now, you're, I, I was interested to read that you, you're you skeptical that uh, perhaps uh, there, it would only take one state to, to not follow this. You could easily, I guess, change your, your, st- your vote at the state level. And you give an example where the shoe's on the other foot. You know, if you're a Democrat, you're probably saying, yes, 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 let's uh, do this reform. Uh, you proposed a scenario under which a Republican won the um, popular vote, but lost California by 15 points, and you you wonder if California would really go through with it, you know? Yeah, I mean it's it, you know it's hard to say. I mean right now Democrats tend to be the people who are for this, but what if it were reversed? Well, if it were reversed, it were reversed. That's the way things go. Uh, I also think it would change uh, mostly for the better the way people campaign, Tom, because right now. Uh, presidential candidates campaign in about seven states, essentially, right? And they go to the same cities and towns over and over and over again. They go to Orlando and Ocala, and they don't go so much to Miami-Dade, a little bit, but Miami-Dade's going to be 70-30 Democratic. Uh, So they go to the contested areas of the contested states, you know, not not Cleveland so much, but Columbus. at least in this scenario, they'd have to campaign all across the country, and they'd have to worry about their margins in every state. In other words, today, a Republican can look at California or a Democrat can look at Texas and say, I'm not spending a dime there. It doesn't matter if I lose their 55 to 45 or 85 to 15. I'm losing the electoral votes, and that's how we count it, and that's what matters. 
But if you if they had to campaign nationwide, they'd have to compete. The Democrat would have to try to get as many votes in Texas as they possibly could, and the Republican would have to do the same thing in California. That would change the nature of the kind of message, I think, they had to put out and probably change it for the better, make it a little more inclusive. Now, of course, you haven't included every idea on, along these lines, but one that you didn't include in your 14-point uh, agenda that I, I have to admit is somewhat attractive to me, I, re- I recognize there are problems with it, is the Australian model, carrot and the stick uh, model. You get fined yeah. if you don't vote, and, and, and if you do vote, you get uh, put into a lottery, and you might win a might win some money. And uh, apparently this has increased the, the vote total, and the effect po- po- uh, political scientists tell us is a, a moderating effect. Uh, politicians have to, uh, you know, have to move to the center. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, and um, I don't know, who knows? Maybe I should have put it in there. I considered it, and I read about it, and I just thought, even even as <laughs> as hopeful and optimistic as some of my own things uh, points are, I thought that one was just something that is probably never going to fly in the United States. I mean, yeah, geez, we have uh, we have a it's contested enough as to who gets to vote these days and who doesn't. Yeah, and, there, and there's, on the other hand, uh, I would say that you know, I mean, uh, uh, voter and voter participation is going up, so. You know, that's that's maybe a good sign. That's a hopeful sign. Yeah. By the way, um, on these political fixes, do you do you think any any one of these do you think is somewhat close to a possibility <laughs> and, and away from pie in the sky? Uh, I well, gerrymandering, doing something about gerrymandering is 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 something that is gathering a lot of force uh, <clears throat> with these redistricting commissions and. There are some bills in Congress about uh, doing away with, or well, not completely doing away with, but not having to rely solely on single-member districts. Uh, now, that's something that it's going to take time, but I-, I see a little momentum gathering around that question. And uh, it would be really interesting if 10 years from now, and, you know, all it takes is somebody, you know, Howard Schultz, if Howard Schultz wants to spend $300 million usefully rather than stupidly, get behind this. <laughs> you know, and we might, in 10 years, we might have an expanded House of Representatives with a non-single member districts and ranked choice voting. And we might have 30 more moderate-ish people in the House of Representatives. And uh, an actual difference would have been made. We just have about three minutes left, and I've neglected social and cultural fixes. And these are, you know, as important, if not more so. Uh, maybe just start with the first one here. Establish foreign, uh, quote-unquote foreign, interstate college student exchange programs between blue and red states. You, you feel like we're, we're, we're in our, our silos and our cultural, uh, I guess, self, self-identified uh, uh, islands enough that we, we need to do some cross-cultural um, interchange? I- I absolutely do. Um, you know, the premise of these non-political solutions is, is this. This isn't just a political problem, A, and B, politicians aren't going to wake up and say, gee, let's change the system. You know, change needs to come from other social forces, and then politicians react to that change. Politicians always react to broader social changes. They rarely lead the change. You know, they didn't come out one day and say, gee, let's write a civil rights bill. The civil rights bill was the result of years and years and years of social activism and pressure. And that's how politics works. So I started thinking, well, what are some other things that could be done that could change our society in ways that will eventually impact politics. And so that's what these last six, I think, changes are about. Just trying to think of ways uh, to, to make us, as a people, a little bit less uh, um, disunified. So we have become kind of strangers to one another, and I think it would be great if public universities could start exchange programs, just like the old foreign student exchange programs of the post-war era, in which kids from Utah go to, and not Salt Lake City, which, you know, it's urban and it's kind of liberal, 
But kids from rural Utah go to, uh, you know, New York City or Boston, and kids from New York City and Boston go to, um, you know, small towns in Utah uh, for a year and, and go to school there uh, and, uh, and, and back and forth and so on and so on. At least people would learn that the other people are like actual human beings, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're unfortunately we're losing that. Yeah, uh, one of these. Yeah. Uh, I'll just mention this: reduce college to three years, make year four a service year. But I want to. Uh, we just have about a minute left. Uh, have you talk about this uh, vastly expand civics education? That's number twelve on your list. Uh, and you mentioned that civics education has been reduced over time. We've, we've taught kids other things. Vastly expand civics education. What would that look like? Well, uh, civics education for most kids, uh, experts tell me, is a year or two. I think it should be 12, and I think it should be, you know, everywhere in the country, and it's going to be taught differently in Alabama than it's going to be taught in New- in Vermont. Fine. Teach it a little differently. But let's teach kids to be citizens and what citizenship means and what it entails. I think if we do that uh, in 10 or 15 years' time, we'll have adults who are more cognizant of their civic responsibilities. And so that, I'm glad we concluded on this, Tom, I guess, because it's not just up to the politicians. It's up to us. And uh, again, it's not like we're going to wake up one day and snap our fingers and fix things. But it's us up to us to put into place systems that over the course of a generation or two will help change the way we think for the better. And I guess that's included in the, the your subtle change from uh, Benjamin Franklin's. He said, if you could keep it, uh, your title, if we can keep it. That's the title of the Our book. Our job. Uh, yeah. Uh, subtitle, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. Michael Tomaski is the author. That book is out and available now. And uh, Michael Tomaski, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm very grateful to you. Thanks. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Chapter, provides member social and educational activities and networking with agricultural communication professionals. The U.S. isn't the only country with a raging immigration debate. Europe has its own. But maybe the solution isn't stronger borders. Maybe it's no borders. We live in a time when... We can communicate with anyone in the world, anywhere, regardless of borders. And yet, our identities are chained more than ever to borders. That's next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. You can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, MOAP, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.co.